0: Hello, and welcome back to the Observer Station. This week, I've got an episode about the Council's conclusions and what they mean for the fisheries up in Alaska. Much like last week, I'm going to include some audio um, so that snippets of people's comments during the Council session will be inserted into this episode. So happy holidays to everyone out there, and listen in to find out what's going on. Okay, so there are a lot of topics covered by the council over this week i'm going to cover the topics that i thought were a little bit more important so the first thing we're going to step into is the red king crab saving area what this is this is a section of the bering sea with limited fishing uh, no bottom contact gear so no bottom trawling um, they do allow pelagic trawling in this area they allow long line in this area they don't allow pot fishing i believe that it's all forms of pot fishing so not even slinky pot which is a form of long line pot but i'm not actually sure on that they do this to protect the red king king crab in the area they have this area selected out as an area where the crab come when they're freshly molting so the bodies are soft they do this so to so the crab have a safe area away from bottom trawling gear that won't kill them so that they can get harder and have higher odds of surviving when coming in contact with fishing gear the worry is that they're not doing enough in this area to protect the king crab because the king king crab populations have decreased drastically you could say they've pretty much plummeted and they want to know if they need to do more so there's a couple groups in there saying we're not doing enough there's a couple groups in there saying we're doing too much there's some groups that say we need to move the red king's crab saving area because it's not in the right spot and i'm going to play you a couple comments obviously i'm picking more of my favorite comments they don't have a whole lot of time and they spent uh, several hours covering this and i don't have that kind of time if you want to listen to all the comments go through if you want to listen to all the reports which are quite a few go ahead and go to their youtube channel all this video is on there there's plenty of hours of audio to listen to cool informative slideshows and things like that but i'm going to get started with my first favorite comment
1: my name is John Warrenchuck, senior scientist and campaign manager for Oceana. Does it sound weird? Um, good to be here in person. This is always uh, helpful to see people's faces. Um, well, thanks uh, for taking testimony today on the red king crab um, emergency rule for emergency petition. Uh, we appreciate the council um, asking for an analysis around this, and we appreciate the staff's quick delivery around the analysis. Uh, we submitted a letter on this. We also submitted a letter to the Federal Register in support of this action. Um, and I just submitted a uh, some visuals to follow along with our letter here. So in this picture here, uh, you know, this is a probably a two to three year old red king crab um it's right on the cusp of of switching from uh you see it this is probably from a survey amongst a bunch of invertebrates that uh, at this age it would use to to hide or hide from predators this is part of its habitat these benthic invertebrates that form its habitat we see mussels we see uh looks like sea raspberries which are soft corals A bunch of other species um and just as they grow out of this size they would start to rely on all these invertebrates more as uh, prey so they feed on sponges corals um invertebrates any kind of benthic things so you, what you're looking at when you're when you're uh, minimizing the impact of trawling on all these species is both protecting its habitat and its prey uh, next slide please And it's reasonable to focus on trawling as the biggest source of impact to uh, both of these species' um, habitat. Um, We've already learned from the EFH analysis that uh, trawling, both pelagic and non-pelagic, is the biggest source of fishery habitat disturbance. Cumulative impact uh, today of over 165,000 square miles. That's 97% of all the fisheries' footprint. Next slide, please. And what we're looking at is is protecting what we call, you know, the breadbasket of the Bering Sea. These are all these uh, invertebrates that make up the biodiversity and the um, uh, habitat complexity in a a place where there isn't a lot of habitat complexity. So these animals take a while to grow, and you've heard me testify here at the Council with some disagreement on what the recovery rates are. Uh, But nonetheless, these things like uh, sea peaches, sea onions, these are types of tunicates, uh, corals, sponges, uh, they form the structure, they form the prey base for all these animals that live on the sea sea floor. Next slide, please. And uh, this is the kind of um, habitat you would see in this area. So we know that um, in the Red King Crab Savings Area, and in much of the uh, uh, middle domain of the Bering Sea, hard substrate is pretty rare. But where these animals uh, grow and attach, is to any sort of um, anything hard that's on the bottom, so a, a rock that's been dropped there from past glacial activity way back in the Ice Age or uh, hard things like uh, snail shells. And so this um, lovely blob, which would look a lot nicer in the water with all its polyps and everything out, has uh, soft corals, uh, dracaemia corals, those are sea raspberries. It looks like it might have some snails, snail eggs. looks like it has some barnacles. Um, But the point of of showing this is that um, there has been studies, NIMS has spent millions of dollars looking at this stuff, that cumulative trawling uh, in the Bering Sea causes a change in the community structure of the seafloor. Uh, the animals any sort of bottom-dwelling animal will be smaller than average in a trawled area versus an untrawled area and there'll be less epibenthic stuff stuff that sticks up from the bottom Um, and these small changes can mean big impacts. so if you can imagine if the average size of the snail was smaller the average size of their shell would be smaller Um, when it loses its shell or dies uh, the stuff starts growing on it but if if the snail doesn't live to be a large snail there's not enough room on its shell for this other stuff to grow so you can see how these subtle changes could have um, uh, cascading consequences next slide please So here's the red king crab savings area in red, and all the orange blobs are uh, the 30-year average um, abundance of red king crab. You can see it's a very important habitat, both inside and outside the area. Next slide, please. And here's an example of habitat impacts from the fishing effects model. This is just the uh, loss of habitat, over 25%, um, and you can see uh, uh, lots of um, edge effects around the king crab savings area. Now, next slide, please. But if you start looking at the effect of the individual habitat features, not the average impact of everything uh, that takes, the time it takes to recover, um, you start to see larger impacts. So, for example, here's the loss of something, for example, sea onions, that might take two years to grow. Um, You can see big splotches of area where there's over 25% loss of uh, this prey and habitat for crab. Next slide, please. Now, the effects get even bigger if you assume some of these structures take five years to grow, which also the uh, fisheries effects model did. So this is the effect on just a single habitat feature, for example, sponge. Uh, in reference back to Mr. Govin's testimony, all this area in orange and uh, darker brown, are they, there are sponges there. There are sponges there from the trawl survey, there are sponges there in the bycatch. So I'm not clear why um, there's some disagreement whether or not sponges occur in this area, because they sure come up in the nets a lot. Uh, but the importance of showing this, and we actually had to FOIA for this information just to show… Mr. Orange, your, your time is up. Can you provide us some Share sure? sure? Um, the point of showing this is that you are in the habitat management business. And this, um, what you want to avoid is habitat fragmentation or big swaths of, of empty habitat. So if, if a crab or any other species relied on some benthic invertebrate that took five years to grow, they would find a hard time finding it in let's, any of this area. Let's see if there's any uh, questions. We'll from close there. there. Thank you. Boy, six minutes. Was thank you, Mr. Chairman. And thank you, Mr. Warren. My, my question was just to get, um, give me a chance to maybe help me understand a little bit more. You, you put a slide up there, which we don't have to go back to, that had a picture of a small shell with a bunch of invertebrates living on it. And we know, we know that a pelagic trawl has mesh that is huge at the opening of the net. And um, for meeting, many meetings now, the crabbers have speculated that net that crabs could be caught up in the net and then fall through those large meshes at the at the belly of the net where the foot rope is so how does if that's the case then and you're talking about habitat that's small shells that's critical to benthic invertebrates how does that play out it doesn't seem like pelagic trawling well it may have an effect on crab particularly meeting and molting crab how does it have any impact on small shell distribution and other habitat that those kind of things can live on I would think it would scoop them up and they would fall out the big mesh and land right back behind where they got scooped up just like speculated the crab which are much larger do so i'm just wondering how does that connect to the story that you were telling course? sure um thank you mr measure for the question uh it is true that it seems that uh, a much smaller proportion ends up in the net itself for observers to estimate and count um, but all these species do end up in, in the nets for observer sampling um, so it's not the best indicator of the overall impact but what what is a relatively useful indicator which you've been Using for a while is, this, is the fishing effects model, which just makes some estimates of what happens to these invertebrates when it interacts with the trawl net. Um, and then I referenced the longer term studies that uh, Bob McConaughey he actually did up in that upper left corner there, trawls uh, in that orange area and then trawls on the other side of that red king crab savings area boundary. Um, and then they ran um, a video transect and they created a photo mosaic that's like a kilometer long, counting every single species in there. Um, and what they find is that in areas that were lots of trawling, um, you know, the the animals might not end up in the net, but they get turned over, they might get crushed, Um, the rock or the shell they grew on might get buried, Uh, and there's just a cumulative impact to all those kind of creatures. And so they, on average, were smaller, less abundant, Um, and these were the the indicators that uh, that particular paper um, concluded. But that stuff has not risen up into the management process to influence any sort of decisions yet. Okay, thanks for that. That comment talked about the impact of the pelagic trawl fishery in the Red King's crab saving area.
0: Basically, what he said was there's still an impact. They say that, oh, we're not touching the bottom or we're not, you know, picking up and killing these small organisms. But what the data suggests is that that is not true. That they are, in fact, touching them. They admit to the council knows. So everybody knows that this gear is still coming in contact with the bottom. But what their argument is or what the fisheries argument is, is that we're not making an impact because our webbing, our net holes are so big that we're not actually catching them. Scooping them up and then dropping them back down. As you can kind of imagine, if you went into a chicken coop and just picked up every egg and dropped it back down, you know, just continuously for years and years and years, you're going to break If you're going to cause an issue, your chickens are going to be pissed. So the council had a total of three alternatives put in front of them uh, for what to do about the Red King's Crab sex. Alternative one or option one was just things as these. there ain't no problem just, uh, keep on keeping on. Alternative two was implement an annual closure to the Red King crab saving area and Red crab crab saving sub area to all commercial ground fishing. Existent. The existing closure for non pelagic trawl gear is not changed. The closure would affect uh, basically the longliners and the pelagic gear that goes into this area and fishes during the winter time. Alternative three. Closes a small area of the fishing to Pacific cod fishermen with pot gear. This area just stops pot fishermen from going in there and fishing. So I guess pot fishing is allowed there. What the council ended up electing to do was wait for more science. Um, they want more analysis. They want more done to figure out what the problem is and what the impacts are on the fisheries, the possible impacts to the red king crab saving area. So one argument constantly made by longline fishermen is we're catching the Pacific cod, which are eating all the crab, which is why there aren't any crab. Kind of a silly argument to be made. Yes, the cod are eating the crab, but the cod have always been eating the crab. And cod are selective in the crab that they eat. They don't actually, you know, the large mature males eating the smaller crab. Yes, big cod can eat big crab, but most cod aren't big cod. That's how food webs work. So it's missed as to that's a valid argument. I would argue it's not, but... It's not necessary to close it to smaller gears that make less of an impact to the bottom because they're having less impact on the crab. Yes, long line gear does catch crabs. No, they're not catching as many crabs or affecting as many crabs as trawls. That's science that should be done, but no one really. So move on to the next next hot topic that was talked about in the council meeting was snow crabs the snow crab population has essentially crashed much like the red king crab everyone's really worried about the population what's going on there's a lot of options out there kind of talked about this last week while the comments are interesting some they're not particularly interesting or hot controversy being talked about a lot of people just asking for some level of state fishery so that keep their boats going and the factories going and ready and in the weights for when the population rebounds and they can have a solid fish there's a 119 page report that the council on the rebuilding of snow crab the council did release final motion so what this report displays is statistical analysis of how long it will take population to rebound if there is a solid incentive, a solid plan for people to take care of their crabfish. So if you look through the analysis, one graph displays the total mortality in metric in tons of king crab or not king crab but snow crab. And it doesn't really show anything being killed by the trawl fishery. The trawl fishery, both bottom and pelagic trawl don't catch a whole lot of crab compared to dedicated crab trawls, but these don't take into account effects unseen effects so any crab that are killed under the water that don't end up coming up in the net or the trawl net or the cot end none of those are seen hard to account for those so they're not accounted for in that or any analysis they're attempted to be accounted for with crab parts and things like that but there isn't solid data on that yet there is some research being done by the fisheries themselves to analyze how much of an impact their nets are having on the bottom, but that is slow coming, and it's something that's happened relatively recently because there wasn't a whole lot of incentive for the trawl fishery to give a D about it. So there's not a whole lot done. There's a couple graphs in here. There's a lot of really interesting words like the and snow and crab, but there's one table I like in particular that displays a timeline of rebuilding efforts, and it shows that 2027 is about the average amount of time to rebuild the fishery with some allowable catch with no catch with no fishing with some bycatch things like that Um, if you want to be 100 percent confident the fact the population is going to rebuilding you have to stop pretty much all fishing but they're not going to do that and the council elected to allow for a small small catch small targeted catch of snow crab in the bering sea so there will be some crab that you can buy from alaska and throw on your dinner table there's not going to be a whole lot, prices are going to be expensive, and this is basically just to keep the fishery, the fisherim, fishery, the fishermen, the processing plants, the communities that support these facilities going until a actual fishery can be rebuilt and populate. Reach levels where the council is confident that they can continue harvesting these crab in a sustainable. It's kind of funny. They thought they were doing it in a sustainable rate right beforehand, but obviously not at the population crash completely. Nobody actually knows what caused the population crash, so that Obviously plays part of it, but finding the population crash before we start harvesting crab again might be a good idea. But they've elected to say no, that's not a good idea. It's not going to do too much. It's not what the analysis shows. So maybe common sense is the correct solution here, and the answer is a little bit more complex. With a complex problem comes complex answer. So we'll see what happens. So I say so a lot. Is that the next topic that I want to cover is salmon? So dog salmon talked about this last episode. The story of the dog, you know, this is the council is where decisions are made. The advisory pa- panel advises to the council. They make a decision to bring up to the council and say, hey, this is what we think will be best. And the council is the one that actually makes the decisions that will impact the fishery the state and really the planet. So I'm going to give you guys a couple comments. I'm glad I'm not the only one that saw the aggression in the AP Council's comments towards commenters uh, that were literally putting their heart out there. People that were severely impacted by the collapse of the Chum fishery in Alaska. And let's jump into it. Good
2: morning. All righty. Well, good morning, Mr. Chair, members of the Council. Uh, my name is uh, rob sanderson jr uh, i serve as the second vice president uh, of the clinton haida central council indian tribes of alaska we are the largest sovereign government in the state of alaska with over 34,000 enrolled members we are based out of Juneau, alaska we have 19 federally recognized tribes in southeast alaska before i go into my testimony mr chair i'd like to say hawa thank you in my haida language to the dinaina people for allowing us to do business their land. i am haida i'm from hyderwood alaska now living in ketchikan for years i have been speaking about the decline in our salmon stocks because of what I believe is bycatch. A lot of people think of me more like of a younger leader, but the truth is I'm 58 years old going on 60, and I've been around, I've seen a lot of things in my time. And to the gentleman that spoke before me, I was in those conversations when uh, they're talking about bycatch. And it's starting to catch on, Mr. Chair. The greater body, the citizens of Alaska, tribal and non-tribal, non-tribal citizens alike are finally starting to catch on to actually what is going on in the Bering Sea and the Gulf of Alaska. I fished commercially for salmon helmet cod along the eastern gulf of alaska for over 25 years subsistence was our way of life and it still will be our people have sustained that for thousands of years the federal government the state of alaska they have a trust responsibility to engage with Alaska sovereign tribes in bringing the numbers down on bycatch there's no reason why council cannot take immediate action now our immediate future our ancestors always had ways in which they protected the river systems from overfishing which was never really a problem but if a system was failing they had a place they had a plan in place in which To move to another area to do fishing in their territories. I imagine our ancestors could never have dreamed of the industrial scale which bycatch is taking now from the Bering Sea and in Gulf of Alaska. We are doing our part to ensure we have a fishery for the future generations. We as tribal leaders and members understand that salmon bycatch is not the only factor causing salmon declines, but is one that we can hopefully control by good practices by all that are involved, especially council. Chum and chinook salmon are harvested as salmon bycatch in the pollock fishery. Chum uh, bycatch levels have increased sharply over the past years. All federal and state government fishery agencies, agencies must work hand in hand with our tribes, our commercial sectors, to bring these numbers down. For thousands of years, indigenous peoples around in North Pacific had practiced our spiritual connection to land, air, and sea. We still do today with respect to our food source. Today, Clinton Haida, we do our share of trying to do what we can to protect our salmon source. We trust transbound rivers in, in southeast Alaska from large industrial scale pollution from mine waste in the head, headwaters in British Columbia. We understand climate change is playing a big part in this decline. We know that we don't have the, we also are very aware, Mr. Chair, that we don't have these problems in Southeast Alaska that is going on out west right now. We are here supporting our brothers and sisters, our tribal members that live along the Yukon, to Kuskokwim rivers, to ensure that they have a better future ensuring They have food on the table and to preserve this way of life that has been sustained for our people for millennia. And we're very well aware that these problems could enter into Southeast Alaska. In closing, Mr. Chair, I have some concerns listening to the testimony and talking to some of our tribal members um, in uh, the AP panel uh, recently and I've had that happen to me before when I was a younger man. A lot of hostil- hostilities at the North Pacific Fisheries Management Council advisory panel towards our tribal citizens. The level of hostility that has been continuously displayed to betray hostility hesit- hesitancy for equitable participation in this process, a member asked a question of one of our great leaders Mike Williams, one of our most respected leaders in the state of Alaska, the question was. Do you feed jump sandwiches excuse me a member asked mike williams one of again i said our most respected leaders in the state he said do you feed chum salmon to his dog team is feeding dog, dog salmon to your dog something that's just associated with you or is that something that is common in your community the tone in their voices said it all we are salmon people and we will always be there we were here first and will always be we always will be here that is an arrogant and an uninformed question mr chair I would like to say something that was also said at the Board of Fish. How do you artificially put herring on hemlock branches? When you go through your process of selecting people to the AP, please make sure that they got cultural awareness training on the people that in which our native, our villages that our people live in. That is very
1: important. I apologize, Mr. Sanderson, your your time is up. Can you provide a a concluding comment?
2: Um, Yeah, Mr. Chair. um, I will leave this, uh, my comments here is that, you know, no matter what this council does now or in the future, this will come to a head because we are bringing awareness to a larger body to the citizens of the state of Alaska, Washington, and Oregon. This fishery cannot sustain itself. In our lifetime, it will crash, as sure as I'm sitting here today talking to you. Have a good day. Appreciate it. Thank you. Overall,
0: I found that a pretty good comment. While I can't 100% say that the intent of the AP Council, the advisory panel for the county, aggressive kind of come off as confrontational and in my opinion I think if you are studying a topic like this, you're working directly on a topic like this, you should have some base knowledge. Yes, I think it should be pretty basic knowledge that Chum salmon or the dog salmon gets its name because it's fed to the sled dogs in Alaska, but it's more than that to the people. And to not understand that, it's not super difficult information. This is information that you should be able to find on your own. Any basic Google search on the species, if you have a general idea as to what species is, you should kind of have a basic idea as to history of the species, and that should be you know kind of mandatory for people making choices directly related to that species. So. This next comment comes from the fishery direct list. Uh, A group of fishermen or fisher will be impacted by any regulations that come in. And I'm gonna let it play out completely and then I'll make a comment.
1: Good morning.
3: Good morning, Mr. Chairman, council members. <clears throat> Excuse me, my name's Heather Mann. I'm here on behalf of the Midwater Trawler's Cooperative. MTC has 32 uh, primarily family owned um, trawl fishing vessels, 16 of those vessels participate in the Bering Sea Pollock Fishery. Um, Before I go into my testimony, I want to acknowledge uh, the really heartbreaking situation that Western Alaskans are facing. Um, You know, I often find myself overcome with emotion when I hear the stories and the pain in people's voices and the loss of cultural identity. I I think it's truly devastating. Um, I find myself at the same time, however, you know, deeply proud to be a member of the trawl fleet, and in particular, especially proud to work with uh, the members of the Midwater Trawlers Cooperative and those who fish Pollock. My boat owners, my captains, my crew, they care deeply about being good stewards of the ocean. Uh, They care deeply about minimizing their incidental catch of salmon. I described to you earlier in the meeting how the MTC fleet caught over 100 million pounds of Pollock this year. And along with that Pollock, they had an incidental catch of 564 Chinook total. I think earlier in the week, I broke it down by boat. At the same time, about 4% of the 2022 CHUM uh, incidental catch was caught by the MTC fleet along with those 100 million pounds of pollock. Um, and I'll note that that number in 2022 was 1,357 fish less than what they intercepted in 2021. I do believe it's important to reiterate that we are food producers and net benefits of the nation is a key component of federal fisheries management. Pollock is making its way into the federal lunch program, the school lunch program, and the USDA has committed to additional pollock purchases for this program. This commitment is buoyed by a new study that was released this month by GAO saying quote school age children should consume between four and 10 ounces of seafood per week and committing to get more seafood seafood into schools. So for me there's two stories here Uh, more seafood being served uh, in the nation's schools as part of a nutritious diet and Pollock being part of school lunch programs where food insecure children sometimes get their only meal. I believe I said earlier in the week that currently one in six kids is food insecure in our country. The 100 million pounds of pollock that the fleet uh, sustainably harvested this year equates to over 106 million three ounce portions. And that's just from the MTC fleet of 16 boats. So that's about one chum salmon caught for every 9,700 pounds of pollock. So one chum incidentally caught in the pollock fishery helps provide 10,302 servings of pollock approximately. Setting incidental catch limits at zero, which has been asked for this week, uh, will result in negative net benefits uh, to the nation with no discernible benefit to the chum stocks returning to the Yukon. Setting a hard cap for chum will be very difficult based on the best available science, and it will certainly have negative impacts uh, and consequences to not just harvesters and processors, but potentially to food security in the nation. Our individual catch levels in the MTC fleet of chum salmon, when balanced with achieving our goals for Chinook and achieving the pollock OI, I believe that this does show that our efforts are assisting and helping uh, to share that burden of conservation. MTC supports the AP motion and continue dialogue and work through the Salmon Committee, where rational and transparent conversations can happen. Um, I attended the first meeting, and I think under the leadership of Mr. Mesereau and Ms. Baker, it's a really good opportunity to collaborate and learn from each other about what's important and how we can work together. For me, this is not about fish sticks versus salmon. Uh, it isn't about Western Alaskans versus non Alaskans. Um, this is a complex and complicated issue and for me it's about people it's about the ecosystem which is changing it's about recognizing that we all have a part in it um, and figuring out ways that we can respect each other and work together to achieve our goals and i think at the end of the day we we have the same goals which is our you know healthy communities healthy fisheries um, healthy businesses and so i think this is a very difficult issue but at the end of the day i do think continuing the salmon bycatch committee is the right way to go And I encourage people to participate in that committee and see if we can figure out some ways to move forward that make sense. And I'd be happy to answer any questions, Mr. Chairman.
4: Thank you, Ms. Mann. Curious on why you said setting a CHUM cap is difficult using best available science. Mr. Chairman, Ms.
3: Kimball, thanks for the question. Part of the concern is uh, the unknown amount of hatchery fish that's being released by other countries that we know we're intercepting. We don't generally uh, know that information until after the year is over. At least that's my understanding from a question I asked in the AP. And I think we could set a limit, which would artificially um, shut down the pollock fleet in order to stay under that cap, that would be shutting down um, pollock based on, it could be Asian hatchery fish. And so that's where I'm having trouble understanding where that number would be. Um, If we had real-time genetics information, of course, that would be different, but we don't. And so that's my major concern there. I hope that answers your question. That comment sure is a lot to take in. If you
0: listen to it on the surface level, It sounds like the commercial fishing fleet is the charity that'll feed the world, but it's not true. Yes, the Alaska Pollock Fleet does provide a significant portion of calories for the entire planet. The food that comes out of the Alaska Pollock Fleet is a relatively low-cost, high-energy food with Arguments to be made towards the fact that it's incredibly sustainable, the pollock populations and pollock uh, total level catch seems to want to increase from what it is currently, allowing for significantly more poundage of fish to be caught, kept, processed, and consumed by the planet. And in a world with 8 billion people, the food's got to come somewhere. Now, they put on a false persona here they make it sound like they're feeding starving school children for essentially for free but they're not okay they, the pollock fleet is charging the most they can get out of this fish which is incredibly abundant not only in the u.s but across the globe pollock haddock um, these other similar white-bodied cod species um, have high abundances across the planet relatively easy to catch they're pretty dumb large schools easy abundance easy to process they stiffen up allowing for machines to fillet them relatively quickly Um, they do provide a lot of jobs for processors across the globe and for local communities that require funds to keep going that the landings of these fish do give them a lot but they don't they're not as charitable, they're not as wholehearted, they're not as warm and cuddly as it makes it seem. She talks about how her commercial fishing fleet feel like stewards across the planet. And in my experience as an observer and you know I I feel like I I can speak for some other observers as well. This is a load of malarkey. A lot of the fishermen I have really don't give two duties about the overall health of the ecosystem. They're more concerned about impacts of them directly, the fish that they can catch now, keep now, sell now, make money off now, eat now, or kill for absolutely no reason now. Some fishermen you'll see will intentionally kill non-target species because they can, they have nothing better to do, or they think that, They have some misguided idea that this fish is impacting the fish I want to catch. So I'm going to catch, kill it, and it won't be there for me to catch next time. And the idea that fishermen, maybe now, maybe the idea is changing now. But historically, fishermen haven't been seen as uh, environmentalists, at least the commercial fishing fleet, the industrial fishing fleet, those coming in with hundreds of thousands of pounds of fish and dumping them on processing shores to be... Flayed up and sold across the globe. Another issue with this comment is the idea that, oh, if we set zero bycatch, then it's going to shut down the Pollock fleet and no one will be able to catch any fish, schoolchildren will starve, and people will be left homeless. Well, it's really misleading. The Alaska Pollock fleet has not attempted years prior to... Mitigate bycatch unless told to by regulations and management. Much like car companies in the late 1900s, when the state of California required that emissions be fixed, uh, car companies, through a temper tantrum, said, We can't do this. We just won't sell cars in California. And you know what they did? They found a way. The catalytic converter was invented. The science behind it is 100% understand. Nobody has a clear indication as to why, when you reburn carbon monoxide, it c- turns to carbon dioxide, which is significantly less deadly to humans and animals. Um, and the Alaska Pollock fleet will will figure out a way. You give someone millions and millions and billions of dollars of incentive to figure out how to get it out of the sea, the earth and they will find a way to do it sustainably they're going to obviously want to keep their overhead as low as possible but if you tell them well you can do that but here are the minimums that you have to meet they will figure out how to do it there is money to be made and no matter how much they whine and complain and moan and bitch they will find a way to harvest these fish these species there's a lot of money out there to be made and when the commercial fisheries say, oh, no, we can't do that. That's not fair. It's dumb. It's dumb. I know the maxine Stevens Act states that you have to balance the economic opportunities with environmental impact, and you have to prove that one isn't going to have too much of an impact on the other. Um, is a silly, kind of outdated idea, realistically. I know the National marine fishery service and all these really end up working for the department of commerce which affects or which controls essentially the economy of the entire united states the these things need to be looked at as more sustainable more for the environmental impact and more long term we are relatively short-sighted species you know your average person lives goes to school, joins the workforce, and is out of the workforce in, what, 70 years? And that's not even as long as some of these rockfish species live. Some of these benthic bottom-dwelling species, they estimate may take up to 100 years to, you know, redevelop. And that's not—that's past one human lifetime. So what does one human care about it? If it doesn't affect me directly, then why should I give two duties about it? So, don't believe that the fishermen are necessarily, you know, the bad guys. They do want to make money out of this. But when they whine and complain and moan like spoiled children, you know, sometimes you got to put them in their place. You got to add a little bit of discipline and say, that's fine. You can go out and catch these pollock, which is what we want you to do, but you need to not catch these chum salmon. And if you catch them... Why aren't they required to process these bycatch species? They have to, or they have to make an attempt to with king salmon. Why not these chump salmon? Yeah, they catch a lot. Yeah, people don't want to eat them. But obviously, there is something that can be done with these fish. They don't need to be just taken and dumped at sea for absolutely no reason. I have been on processing boats, Alaska fishing boats that take trawl alleys hundreds of and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of fish, individual fish in the thousands, and just dump them at sea. And that's where they go and say, yeah, probably does add to, you know, the nutrition levels of the environment, things like that. But it really is a waste. We're killing this fish for absolutely no reason. They make the argument that, oh, well, we don't know how many hatchery fish we're catching. Prove that you're not having an impact on these Western species in real time they have the ability to get biological DNA analysis of these fish significantly quicker than what they're required to do right now right now it takes you know a year a couple of years to get the analysis from these DNA samples that are being collected by observers on the fishing vessels or at the processing plants why not require the fisheries to put up labs to take a sub-sample of the chum that are being collected and sample them so that they can prove that they're not having an impact. If they're not having an impact on there, prove it. Prove that you are not the reason that Western chum salmon are decreasing in population. Prove it. And then we can go from there. It seems you are having impact. You are catching large quantities of fish. Prove that you're not having the impact that you say you are. And then we can go from there. All right. That was my rant. We're going to go find a couple more comments to listen to. And I don't think most of them enraged me as much as this one did. I obviously have an incredible bias when it comes to fishermen. And I'm willing to state that, willing to admit that. I'm more of an environmentalist. I am a sport fisherman, a hunter, a hunter. I've worked with commercial fishermen. A lot of them, are, you know, are half decent people. Some of them are really good people. And a few of them are incredibly rotten eggs. But I don't feel the picture painted in here was really representative of what's going on out there. And I feel it was intentionally misleading to try and make you feel more bad for the fishermen, less bad for the people that are starving and unable to catch the fish which historically for you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years that they have been able to catch and manage themselves okay next comment
5: good uh, afternoon uh, to the board Um, my name is uh, joel jackson i'm with the organized village of cake down in southeast alaska Um, i've been following this uh bike at tissue long before it be, really became an issue. I was a commercial halibut fisherman down here in Southeast Alaska. Um, just a small time operation, but it provided me income to supplement my job. And when uh, the uh, helibut uh, went into um, limited entry, I had 5,300 pounds and I mainly fish on weekends and stuff because I had a regular job, but over the years, and I sold out probably about five, seven years ago, I can't remember now, but when I originally started, I had 5,300 pounds. And by the time I finally sold my IFQs uh, due to uh, the halibut commission taking poundage away from me every year, uh, I ended up with like 1,200 pounds of IFQs for halibut. And when I was fishing, I noticed the uh, size of the halibut had really went down, it really went down. A lot of the fish I was catching were the largest, probably about a hundred pounds. When, you know, before we we're catching uh, really large halibut up to 300 pounds. But by the time I was done, it took me longer to catch my halibut quota due to the fact the halibut were all smaller. There, I hardly caught anything over 80 pounds. So, uh, when I start watching the uh, Helvet bite catch up there in the Bering Sea. I figured I better get out of the fishing helvet before I lost everything. <laughs> but you know, uh, reason why I know that they come down even this far and even further to California, I, I read somewhere, uh, is my uncle, my late uncle, he was telling me stories of catching uh, tagged Helibut out here in uh, Frederick Sound, down here in Southeast Alaska, and it was tagged in the Bering Sea. So. We know they migrate down here, so I know that that affects us. And you know, my my main concern is our salmon. Though over the last four to five years, we've had drought here, and in the summertime, and we lost a lot of salmon. But when I see the numbers of the salmon being uh, thrown aside for bycatch, that's really concerning. Like you heard everybody else testify, there's a lot of reasons why they're not returning, but the fact is, this bycatch can be prevented. I mean, it's only probably only the only ones that can be uh, can be uh, made sure that they're not uh, they're not overfished up there in the Barents Sea. All the rest is basically, you know, the will of nature. And I feel for my Western uh, brothers and sisters, Western Alaska. It really concerns me. I attended AFN and there was a lot of uh, discussion about the salmon up there. The lack of salmon in the Yukon Kuskokwim rivers for the last 3 years they had nothing in their smokehouses the subsistence users and uh, it caused a divide in our native community up there. And you know it's hard to see that. Uh, I couldn't imagine what that would be like if I didn't have fish every year in my smokehouse. Because salmon is our way of life. It sustains us through the year, from year to year. It's you know I'm not going to give you uh, numbers and stuff like that, but I'm just giving you what I see happening around us. It's so hard to see this happening. It's uh. I was just reading this morning in one of the papers that there's over 300 trawlers working out of Seattle, and only about 70 or 80 of them don't come to Alaska. Mr. Jackson. Yes, I, I apologize. Your time is up. Would you like to provide a summary comment? Oh, I didn't know that. Dude, that went pretty by pretty fast. Um, yeah, I just want to encourage the uh, board to really listen to the people, because without this, uh, without you listening, it's gonna, it's gonna uh, come to a real bad ending here. Uh, that's that's just my foreseeable outlook uh, for this. It's not going to be sustainable. It isn't sustainable. All right. Thank you for your time, and uh, you guys have a good afternoon. Thank you, Mr. Jackson
0: now you may be wondering why i included this comment this gentleman is incredibly polite nice gentleman seems like does not seem to be the most informed um he does make some interesting comments on his experiences with halibut numbers and catching large halibut previously and not catching large halibut now and while i don't agree with all his comments uh he does make some interesting growths as a person. He talks about how he learns about the migration of halibut from Oregon to California, or Alaska, Washington, Oregon, California, Oregon, Washington, Alaska is some migration pattern of halibut. So not all halibut do it, but they spawn mostly in the state of Alaska. They migrate down as young juveniles to California, and they stay out the Oregon, California, Washington coasts. there, they grow to large sizes, and then, while some large halibut can be caught down in these waters, most of the time, these large female halibut migrate through, mosey on back up to Alaska and spawn up in those areas. Now, it's another example of a native person of alaska expressing their annoyance with the council process and its inability to rapidly make changes for a rapidly changing environment there's a few more comments to be made and you can feel the frustration in these comments much like the last episode so i'm not going to get too far into it i'm just going to record another comment and let you decipher it for yourself.
6: First, I want to thank the people of Dinaina Ethnina for providing the space for this meeting to occur. Melissa Johnson, speaking as a tribal member of Nome Eskimo community, not speaking for my tribe, and on behalf of my ancestors who have continued to provide this guidance for me to be in this place that I am in now. Next slide, please. The values, traditions, and instillment of a holistic indigenous way of life was shared with me by my grandparents who were from and Alaska. They raised me on the different species throughout the ecosystem, including the the varieties of salmon. Addressing this concern about salmon by catch is something that our tribes are well overdue for. Next slide, please. As a mother of three and one who carries a lot of emotion regarding this issue, I am briefly showing a snapshot of our documented historical data from our elders about fishing. Next slide. This generational timeline is one way our science has been shared through generations. Next slide, where maybe in this body and other imposed management bodies reliance on Western scientific education is how data is stored. So next slide. So in the break, I did bring these two pieces of material that were created at the time that my oldest was seven and eight years old. It shows that all the kinds of foods that we eat like muktuk, whale, fish, fish, eggs, and many other foods are very important and that it takes more than one generation to share this knowledge. But to capture it in a text from the mind of a seven and eight year old person, it means a lot this document is here it exists traditional knowledge is here it exists so regarding the overall suggestions that the ap passed regarding the substitute motion clearly shows the inequitable measures that this body if passed here today does not meet msa and tribal trust obligations the initial motion that was presented by the tribal ap member wasn't asked to yet again as indicated throughout the past few days of conversations to begin action now to work to meet the needs of tribal members along the Bering Sea coast into the interior of Alaska including actions that affect our first nations people in Canada as a lot of conversations that have been had we need to worry about the Asian fish population we need to worry about the Russian we also need to worry about our family members that go in river past the Bering Sea coast and I realize that I'm um, out of time and some of I'm going to just my closing comment is I'm referring to myself as a third person on the advisory panel. And I do carry a lot of emotion on this issue. It is very sad that as as, as a tribal member in that body, now being the only tribal member until the decision is made in February, I am alone. I am alone in that body, and I am alone in this body. It is the strength, guidance, and courage that my ancestors have given me, as well as as the three people that I continue to carry on my face
1: moving forward. Thank you very much for your testimony today, Ms. Johnson, and for your service on the advisory panel. Mr. Down has a question for you. Thank, thank you very much, uh, um, Ms. Johnson. Um, so I, I would say I appreciate your emotion. I do have a question here, but I appreciate your your uh, your emotional attachment to this, and and I would just like to let you know that uh, um, that, that I do feel connected uh, to your story here and. appreciate the data i hope that you'll take uh um our uh, appreciation back to kiana and um uh for the data that that she provided the illustrations and the story but my question to you is who is uh there's a saying that says a picture is worth a thousand words but really it has to be a good picture and this is a great picture so this is this this one does it for me so who is uh daisy McToya jack
6: all right um mr down thank you for your question i wanted to take a moment to make sure that this person that you're inquiring about is shown not just here in person but for those that are being able to see remotely daisy mctoic is the person that raised me instilled all these indigenous values literally the day after school got out in Nome, she had her truck packed her rifles in gear enough fuel to last a certain amount of time we followed the fish species all throughout summer into the fall we went to four different fish camps she navigated her way In a a Western way of life, and then she instilled many values into me that I have shared with the three people that I have brought into this place. So, the middle her middle name is the phonetic English equivalent, because for some people who do not speak another language, and I'm very blessed that my daughter's serving in the U.S. Navy, she is fluent in the Persian Farsi language and a sub dialect. So, anyone who does not speak another language other than English, they have a hard time pronouncing certain names. So. This person right here, she, she did what she knew was best to make sure that our indigenous knowledge is carried through in an urban way of life. She balanced everything as best that she could, given the constraints that you know were you know with, within her. So this is, you know, this is person that raised me. This is who I get my name from. My Inipak name is after this person the skills that I carry today is because of her. And what she had before that was passed down many generations. I hope that
1: answers your question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ms. Johnson, for for that. And
4: that definitely answers the question. Thank you.
5: Um, I wonder if you could um,
2: draw a distinction for us between um, you referenced the the motion that um, was Uh, brought up in the ap and the substitute motion and i I wonder if you could just articulate for us the distinction between the two and um, your views of uh, the motion that the ap ultimately passed and uh, i guess how that's distinct from uh, the motion that the ap did not pass
6: mr Curlin, thank you for your question i don't know how many people in this space or in the audience including myself this is one of the first times that i've had to refer to myself within a week and a half of meetings as that other person that is representing carrying the weight of at minimum 118 tribes that they work with but collectively as a single indigenous tribal subsistence way of life person that person who if you were to see me a few days ago in that body i could say at that time that that was me it still is after this meeting but because of you know the rules and regulations we have in all systems i'm portraying myself as a tribal member today So. To answer your question, though, the motion that they presented and it's kind of weird we're using you know these different pronouns but the motion that they presented was. That the ap recommends the Council initiate an analysis to examine a range of alternatives, including a PSE limit of zero to set a PSC limit for Bering Sea Chum by catch in developing this analysis. The Council should work collaboratively collaboratively with tribal governments consult with tribes and include traditional and indigenous knowledge as a key component of the analysis. Through amendments and discussions and voting and a substitute motion that was carried forward. The public comments that were the written public comments that were provided before the deadline and the ones that occurred during the ap. Because the ap selected a substitute motion. All of those opportunities were negated so there's been many things that were thrown around here, you know the past week and a half or so that. We're all working to be equitable by providing a substitute motion that is not being equitable. people there's there's already been previous testifiers that says we need to do something now. The salmon bycatch committee may continue, but we need to do something now. We cannot wait for April or August after fishing season is over to initiate something. I hope that answers your question.
1: Mr. Curland. Thank you. Uh, it does I, I just have a follow-up.
2: Um, specifically, I'm wondering your views of continuing the salmon bycatch committee's work.
6: So i'm also a participant you know a member of the salmon by catch committee and do my best in this body, as well as previous leadership roles that i've carried to work collaboratively with others, whether they are like minded as being a tribal member or maybe they they advocate on behalf of tribes, or you know they're totally from another area. I think that it would be a disservice to discontinue the salmon by catch committee past April salmon by catch is not going to go away. So one of the one of the suggestions that I have is that this committee should. continue its work, but. In regards to immediate action happening happening now something needs to happen now not wait until April or further to make that um, decision.
1: Thank you, Mr Kerland further questions for Ms. Johnson. Ms Kimball.
4: Thank you, thank you, Ms. Johnson for your testimony and your engagement at the advisory panel and. um, I don't know who else to ask this question of. So if you don't want to answer it, that's your prerogative. But there's been a lot of um, testimony, including yours, and your work at the advisory panel about looking at a, a cap. And I think we were provided the information about hatchery releases in order to help inform what a cap like that might look like. And I guess to be blunt, my concern is that that an overall cap like that might not have any effect on Alaskan CHUM might just be saving a lot of Asian CHUM. So my question is, do you think there would be interest in thinking about or considering a cap that's structured on Western Alaska component of the bycatch or triggered by Western Alaska abundance and focus on the component that we care about? Or is that really not on the table um, per your groups or too complicated? And again, this is not something you've thought about. I understand that, but I'm not sure who else to ask. And that's one of my basic questions. Ms. Kimball, thank
6: you for your question. Because I ran out of time, I had, you know, I didn't have the opportunity to put forward any other suggestions that may not have been voiced or maybe they will be voiced in other testifiers i really don't know about the future testifiers um including zero does not limit the council in the range of alternatives it maximizes the possible range including zero in the analysis provides information about the fishery what the fishery might look like with no bycatch and whether or not that is likely to have an impact on our in river systems we will learn something if provided this opportunity the council can craft a purpose and need statement and determine the range of alternatives so but i cannot as an AP member, I cannot without collaboration, and because we have this process occurring right now, I cannot speak right now on behalf of at minimum 118 tribes that I work with to answer your questions. Those three suggestions that I have as a tribal member, again, I am pointing out I am not representing Nome Eskimo Community Tribe, I am representing that I am a tribal member. Those three recommendations that I carry, um, we are. Climate change has been the deferred, you know, affect of everything and the effects that we all, you know, get to carry at the end of the day, the week, the month, the year, years, decades. Climate change has always happened. We need to do something new. And if that something new doesn't work, then we've learned something. But if we can t- if we as an entire body continue to stay in status quo, we're gonna be like our poor, you know, lower 48 tribal members on the East Coast, where where, where they're they're you know their ecosystem has been devastated because they maybe didn't try something different and see it take we're going to sacrifice we are all going to sacrifice we've sacrificed the last two years in this worldwide pandemic but as indigenous people we continue to be the carriers of everyone's sacrifices you know it's, it's really had sad to hear at a indigenous place names working group meeting where someone had to apply for a special permit to get one fish to give their honor and respect to an elder that has paved the way so if we don't try something different zero is very hard of course but how do we know if we haven't tried it and to you know to to, i know i'm giving you a long-winded answer but there has been documentation since statehood we all have been referring to 2012 okay since we want to use historical data from all areas what about since the beginning of statehood that's our beginning point. We're still in the middle. Our children are going to be the next, you know, they're going to be, they're, they are our offspring. The decisions that we make, it it definitely impacts their way of life. But everyone knows that children are very resilient. And things that have been imposed on them not by their choice, but they continue to be resilient as Indigenous people have done so. I hope that kind of answers your questions. And if I, I have them written down, I'm happy to, you know, type them up and send them. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Miss Kimball. Any further questions for Ms. Johnson? Thanks again for your testimony.
0: This has to be one of my favorite comments. While it doesn't get into the science of bycatch, troll impact on Chum and Chinook and Coho and Sockeye directly, it does talk about... The historical impact to the native people of Alaska and to the first people of Canada. The first people, I believe, is just what the Canadians a term for people. But it it comes from a member of the AP Council who's distinctly, distinctly separating themselves from the AP and the tribes and the tribal area that they come from in Alaska. They're coming here as an independent in- entity, and that's really hard to do. It's really hard to separate yourself from the work that you do directly at, at home and in a semi-profession uh, as a member of the AP council or AP advisory panel. I say that this comment has a lot of emotes behind it. it. It it comes from someone who is being directly impacted by something and can D and is working directly in the council process and is just not seeing any desired results. So what the advisory panel put forward Was we want something we want more analysis into this problem so that we can figure out a solution that will be effective for the western chum salmon and have the least amount of impact on the pollock fishery. And this is the this is the final action of the council meeting or the council at this meeting as well. That in the end the council ends up voting against putting a cap on chum, against putting a flexible or a, a soft cap on chum. Against doing nothing, they elect to meet in the middle. There, there's no no changes going to be made for ACs. Probably not for BCs, and probably won't happen till at earliest 2024. And what the plan is for next year is to go through, do more analysis kind of rush this through, expedite this problem through the council process, because the council process does take a long time. It takes a long time to get anything through government. It takes a long time to get anything through the council. Their plan is to analyze the data that they currently have, see where their gap in knowledge is, see if they can fill that somehow by getting data from other countries, other sources, from the fisheries directly, using that alongside a couple of groups formed by the council to advise on this issue. This advisory panels or uh, groups will be made up of native Alaskans. They'll be made up of fishermen. They'll be made up of community members from the communities of the Pollock fleet. They'll be made up of scientists and they want these people to come together and come to a practical solution as to what can be done about the Western Alaska chum. Now, while well, they may come to a different conclusion than myself or yourself or uh, most of the people who comment on this, I think the best solution is to get a hard cap on Western Chum, come up with a rapid solution to getting DNA results from the Chum that are being caught by the fleet so they can find real-time locations of Western Chum in the Bering Sea or Gulf Alaska, try to avoid those locations where the Chum are located, where the Western Chum are located. Avoid catching as many of them as possible, set a hard cap. I don't know what that cap is. The number thrown around a lot in the council meeting is 250,000 chum total. While that seems like a lot of fish, it's not a lot of fish when you compare the billions of fish being released from hatchery programs in the US, Russia, Japan, and the rest of the uh, Asian continent. Now, is this going to make a change? Nobody knows. The hope is that if you catch, you know, 25,000 less fish in the sea, these are adult fish. Most of the chum that they catch in the Pollock Fleet, through my experience, have had significantly matured eggs and sperm sacs. Sperm, sperm testy, I guess that would be the proper term for that, not just sperm sacs. Um, and most of them are larger fish. You don't catch a whole lot of chum, in my experience, that are small juveniles. So the survivability of these fish is going to be higher. And the higher survivability of these fish means that they are more likely to make their, their runs up the river and lay eggs. And it's a it's an exponential return rate when it comes to salmon. The more salmon you get in the rivers, the more salmon that leave the rivers, the higher the numbers you'll get in the next return. And it get, reaches up to the maximum sustainable amount of salmon for that river um, with ocean conditions. And so back to what I was saying, hard cap on chum is going to have to come. That rhymed, and I'm a poet, and I know it. Observers have been seeing high numbers of chum bycatch for as long as I've been observing, probably significantly longer before that, but I can't speak to it, and nothing has been done about it. The term chumpocalypse is used by nymph staff, is used by observers, and is used by no one else. The fishermen don't give two duties about chum salmon. They don't give two duties about catching them. They don't give two duties about... Anything dealing with it. If there's not a hard cap on it, fishermen don't care. Now, previous comments from the fishing fleet in the AP meeting and in this one said, oh, well, if you put a hard cap, then what's the incentive for fishermen to catch more? Well, if they catch a hard cap, then they're not allowed to catch anymore. Um, You just keep decreasing that cap till you find the rate that helps the Western Chum Salmon the most with impacting the trawl fleet the least. There's a fine line. You'll find it. Someone will find it. But doing nothing is hard. It's not the right call. The council's not planning to do nothing. They're planning on delaying until they have better information, which is really, really, really it's frustrating for the native peoples. It's frustrating for any environmentalist organizations. And it's frustrating to wait until there is a problem to find a solution. This has been something that has been coming up for a long time, nobody has done anything, and now that something has happened drastically, they realize that they need to fix it. Why things aren't more pro-, pro proactive, I don't know. It's incredibly frustrating. The fishing fleet constantly says, well, we can't do this, or we can't do this, or we can't do this, or we can't say no bycatch. We can't limit our bycatch here. It's going to cause us to catch more Chinook. No, it won't. The fleet will find a way. You have to make them do it, though. They have proven time and time and time again that if they're not pushed to do it themselves, they won't do it. Yes, the fishing fleet can react to changes quicker. If you don't have to make them do these things, then they can get it done quickly. The council process takes time. The fishing fleet can do things on demand, on site. They can decide one day, okay, we're not going to fish Pollock every third Wednesday of the month, and they won't do it. But if you wanted to pass that same thing through legislation, it would take years, at least. And it's frustrating because until the council, the U.S. government, someone forces or makes the idea, puts the idea in the fishing fleet that, hey, if you don't change this, we're going to make you. They won't make the change. These things need to be done more proactively, by the government, by the fishing fleet, and by the communities around both of these. Yes, the Western Alaskans being impacted by the chum have been saying this for years. Isn't the first time that there's been a collapse in the fishery? And it probably won't be the last time, but it's what we do to change how we react to things that will decide in the future if we are going to have any fish. The planet is changing. No one can make an argument. It's said time and time and time again by the testifiers here, they understand that the planet is changing. But doing nothing about the things that we can do things about is unacceptable. So... (laughs) holiday season tomorrow is christmas eve i'm gonna end this episode here been going on for a while i really like to hear myself talk but i hope all of you have a wonderful holiday winter the days are getting longer appreciate that winter solstice has passed down here in oregon we just had a nice little ice storm my house wasn't hit too bad but i hope everybody's staying safe and warm out there and let's uh let's try to strive for a better tomorrow and a better future for ourselves and our prospects. This is The Observer Station signing up.